In Isaiah chapter 1, the prophet says, and many of us know these words well, we treasure them. He says, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. As I was thinking about that scripture in light of what Tim just shared with us in communion, really there's a progression. He said long, long ago, Tim informed us that, that Job had this cry. I'd never noticed that before. Where he says, oh, that there'd be a man. Oh, that there'd be a mediator, someone who could step in. And he couldn't imagine at that time apparently who that might be. And here Isaiah, many hundreds of years later, it's like he can sense it, he can smell it. He's, there's there's, there's going to be because God's shown it to him. There is a mediator, but he doesn't know who that mediator is. And it was 700 years more before the mediator came. His name is Jesus. Do you realize how privileged we are? Do you realize what we have? What Job couldn't even imagine in his mind Isaiah could only picture in a vision we now have as historical fact. A savior, isn't he wonderful? He's the one who took your sins like crimson and washed them white as snow. He's the one to whom, when we come, he forgives fully, freely, without condition. He is wonderful. He really is. As we go to prayer, I just want you to be mindful of that. I want you to be more than mindful of it. I want you just, even as I pray, to in the quietness of your own heart, tell the Lord how thankful you are, how wonderful he is, that he would forgive a sinner like you, that he would make a way, that he, Jesus, was and is your mediator now and forever. Oh, Father, we are so blessed. We are so, so, so blessed. Lord, as we sing other times, uh, a song that we've learned in, in, in the past year that hope has a name. For us, hope has a name. His name is Jesus, and he is wonderful, and he is magnificent and holy. And Father, he's, he's all those things, whether he ever went to the cross for us or not. But Father, what makes it even more amazing still is that being who he is, all those glorious attributes that he has, that he would humble himself and become obedient to the point of death on a cross. Father, we are so grateful as believers in Jesus Christ here this morning, young and old, male, female, long-time believer, Father, new to the faith, we are so glad that you called us into your family. We are so amazed that Jesus made the way. And Father, now as we go to your word, we've sung your praise, we've walked to the cross, Father, I pray that our hearts will be open, as always, not to what a preacher is going to say, but what the Spirit of God, who dwells in every believer, wants to say to us through the preaching of the Word. Before I finish praying, here's what I'm going to ask of you, friends, brothers and sisters. Just as our heads remain bowed, you may need to open your eyes for a moment, but just quietly, silently, before I pray for us, before I pray for me and for you, would you just whisper a prayer to the Lord for the person to your right and to your left, just that God would minister to their heart today. It's wonderful to pray. I think it's more wonderful to know we're being prayed for. So if you've got somebody next to you, would you just, you don't even have to know their name, just pray that God would speak clearly to their heart today, that they would be open. Even here on the worship team, just pray for one another. Asking God to move into a mighty work 
in every heart here today. Let's just do that for a few moments of quiet. Ask God to speak to them. Ask the Lord to comfort them. Ask him to strengthen them. Father, I will never cease to be amazed at the fact that you hear all of us at once clearly, that you pay attention to us. You're not a father who's got one eye on us and the other on the TV screen, the other on our phone, on the other his mind, eyes focused, but a mind and heart elsewhere, that you are fully engaged with the prayers of your people and you care about our hearts. And Father, I just ask for your help right now because I know how much I need it. As we open your word, Father, who would presume to stand and speak for you? Father, it's not something we grasp for, it's something you give. And Father, as you've asked me to speak to my brothers and sisters today, I pray that they will not listen to the voice of Aaron, but that through my voice and through this teaching, they will pay, we will pay ultimate and exclusive attention to you. Father, we thank you for the help of the Holy Spirit. None of these things are possible on our own, but all of them are possible through him. And so, as always right now, we invite and we even plead, Holy Spirit, guide us in truth, guard us from error, deliver us from distraction, help us to see Jesus. Father, we want to see Jesus clearly this morning in the preaching of your word. We want to see Jesus only this morning in the preaching of your word. And Father, we want to leave joyful in a little while. We want to leave rejoicing for the fact that we came to church, but not just that we came to church and not just that we sang a sweet song or two or talked with a friend, wrote some things down, but that we sat, as it were, at the feet of Jesus, the one who loved us enough to have nails driven through them but did not remain dead, rose again on our behalf, and even now sits at your right hand on our behalf. Father, it is Jesus we love. It is Jesus we seek. And it is in Jesus' name that we pray. As all God's people said together, like they mean it, amen. 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 You may be seated. While you're taking your seats, boys and girls, you can scoot for Children's Church. Children's Church, if you're a guest today, is for the five-year-olds through the second graders. They get a lesson elsewhere while we get one here, and so they're making their way out. They'll be back at the end of the service, and as they make their way out, as always, I want you to make your way into your Bible this morning, and specifically, I want to invite you to meet me in Acts chapter 2. This morning, I want you to meet me in Acts chapter 2, and as you're making your way there, I just want to affirm I. I mentioned it in my post there on the back of the bulletin today, but I I feel like just expressing it verbally to you as well, how amazing, how wonderful, how blessed I was by what we did last Sunday, uh, by what I saw and heard in all of you, by the fellowship that we shared, by the memories, by the the prayers, the singing, just all of it. I don't know about you, I thought it was a pretty good day uh, for us here as a church family, and to whatever extent you were present for it, involved in it. Uh, you maybe expended a little sweat in making it happen. I just want you to know how thankful I am. It was a, a good day, and, 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 and on balance, looking back, I just, I'm so glad that we took the time to really celebrate uh, what God has done for us in our first 40 years, but that we're also looking ahead to the next. I want to ask you a question. This has nothing to do with the sermon, but it has everything to do with church and with family um, because earlier this week, the, the question was raised, and it has been, um, it has been on my mind ever since I was asked the question, now that the 40th is over and all the fun and excitement we had last Sunday, somebody said, are we going back to business as usual? 
I was really convicted by that question. Uh, Last Sunday, we came with a spirit of expectation. Last Sunday, we came in a spirit of celebration. Last Sunday, I bet you hugged more people than you usually hug. I bet you laughed more than you usually laugh. All of you stayed longer, all of us, than we usually stay. Are we going back to business as usual, or do we believe in immeasurably more? I just want us to think about that today, and even just your attitude you want to take toward the rest of the service, or what we do afterwards for the weeks ahead. I think I think God has more for us than business as usual, don't you? And, and I want to invite you just to even now as we go to God's word, you may be excited about what I'm going to say and you may not, but, but would you just even so come with an attitude of expectancy that God wants to, to work in your heart today as I believe he wants to work in mine. So that's just sort of my personal charge to you. That's my mini sermon. Now let's get to the real sermon, which is in Acts chapter 2, where today, as you can probably gather by looking on the screen behind me, if you've dug into your bulletin already, we're beginning a brand new series of studies in God's Word, which I will explain fully, or, or do my best to explain fully for you in just a moment, why we're here, what we're doing, what this is all about. But I want to begin with the reading of God's Word And let that be the first thing from this point forward that rings in our ears and settles in our hearts and charts the course ahead of us. I'm in Acts chapter 2. I'm going to begin reading in verse 37. I'm going to read through verse 47, where, if you'll follow along, this is what the Word of God says. This is the day of Pentecost. The Apostle Peter has just finished preaching the first great sermon of the Christian church And it says, when he had finished in verse 37, that when they, that would be the thousands and thousands of people in the streets of Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, listening to the apostle Peter preach, it says, when they, the crowd heard this, they were pierced to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what should we do? And Peter said to them, repent, and each of you. Be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words, he, Peter, solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then those who had received his word were baptized. And that day there were added about 3,000 souls. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. And many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together. They had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions, sharing with them all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple, And breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. I want to begin this morning by asking you a question. And I want you to think about this question because it's a personal question. It's a bit of a prying question And I want you, as always, to answer it, to think about your answer for no one else in the room other than yourself. Here's my question. What I want you to think about as we begin this morning is are you, would you be, you and yourself alone, be more likely to describe yourself as someone who either A, attends Maranatha Bible Church, or B, as someone who belongs to Maranatha Bible Church? 
Do you attend Maranatha Bible Church or do you belong to Maranatha Bible Church? And if you are our guest here this morning and your home church is elsewhere, ask the same question in the context of that particular place. Are you someone who attends or are you someone who belongs? Now, maybe that's a difference you've never considered before. And even now, as you can think about, maybe there is a difference and what the difference might be. I don't want you to really think about all the reasons why and the contributing factors. I simply want you to answer for yourself in the moment, which is it? Do you attend or do you belong? Because I believe with all my heart that there's a difference. And the more I think about it and the more I work through it, I believe that the difference is huge for this reason among many, many others. Because the way you see yourself when you walk through those doors on Sunday morning or you walk through the doors of whatever church is the one you call home, the way you see yourself when you walk through the doors each and every week will determine how you participate in the life of the church as well as what you, as we often say, get out of it. The way you see yourself will determine participation and also acquisition. Because I believe, again, with all my heart, this is the seed thought we're beginning with this morning for this sermon and all the weeks to follow I believe there is a world's worth of difference between attending and belonging to your church. A world's worth of difference. And that's what this new series is all about. Because as you've already seen on the screen behind me, as I said, if you dug into your bulletin before the service began, today we are beginning a brand new series. A series of messages that are going to take us from now, essentially, to Christmas. The title of the series is We Are a Church. We Are a Church. And it's a look at what it means to belong to it, to a localized assembly, to a localized gathering of men, women, and children, fellow believers in Jesus Christ, a gathering that we, and this is not unique to us, in fact, we talked about this not many weeks ago, but a gathering that we often refer to when we think about it and talk about it as a family. We talk about our church family, our brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. Christ. And this series from now through the end of the year is designed to help us understand what that means, what it's all about, and what it both offers to and requires of us. But before I even go one inch further in that direction, into trying to lay out for you where we're going and why we're doing this. I want to do something that I do periodically because I think it's at least helpful for me if nobody else. Before I continue to tell you what today and the next 12 weeks are all about, I want to make sure we're clear on what it's not, okay? What you're not going, and this may be very helpful, this may be a relief to some of you to hear some of these things, but what we're not going to be talking about, because I believe it's just as important to know where we're not going as where we are. So very, very quickly, let me say as clearly and as emphatically as I possibly can that what you're going to hear from me and a few others over the next 12 weeks is not, everybody say it's not, it's not going to be a series on church attendance, on why your life will be better for going to church. At no point in the next 12 weeks will my sermon outline be seven reasons why you ought to go to church, six reasons why your life will be better if you show up on Sunday. It's not a series on church attendance, number one. Secondly, more pointedly, this may be the one that comes to some of us perhaps as more of a relief. It is not a series on church membership either. I'm not going to be preaching on church membership. Now, I happen to believe, our church happens to believe in terms of our leadership, 
that there are some very good reasons why you would want to enter into a formal membership relationship with the church you attend. There are some very good reasons for that, which I am not going to debate or discuss or even mention here today. I just want you to know that increasing Maranatha's membership role doesn't even make the top 10, those the top 10 reasons I'm preaching this series. That's not what it's all about, a plea and a push for membership. Now, with that said, I am going to, starting next Sunday, just so you know where we're going, I'm going to use one of our tools of membership, something that we call our covenant of fellowship, as, as sort of the framework or the outline for what I'm going to be talking to you about as we dig together into the scriptures. We have a covenant of fellowship. Some of you, many of you know this, some of you don't. But what it simply is, it's a, it's a document that was created of 12 biblically rooted, we believe very scripturally faithful commitments that we ask someone who wants to be a member of our church to commit to. Say, listen, if you want to be a formal member, this is what we ask of you. And this is what you can expect, so to speak, in return from us. And while I'm not going to be talking to you about membership, I'm not going to be promoting or pushing membership, what I realized the last time we offered our membership class, and this is really where last late winter, early spring, the idea for this series was born, is that the most recent offering of our membership class, as we sat with those 10 or 12 people who were pursuing membership, and we went through these lines, these commitments in the covenant of fellowship, I had the thought, I think it was inspired, I don't think it was whatever I ate for breakfast, but the thought came to me, this would make a great series of studies on what it means to belong, what it means to commit, what it means to be more than someone who simply attends, but someone who is involved. I believe that the 12 things, and they're just going to outline the next 12 sermons, are things that every believer should be pursuing wherever they go to church, whatever they call their church home, whether they're ever enshrined as a formal member on the rolls or not. So it's not about membership, but one of our tools is going to be used to guide us. I also want to offer one other disclaimer before we get into the text, and I think it's an important one as well, and I hope it doesn't rub anybody the wrong way. But as I go through today's message, as we go through the next three months together, and I've already done it, I'm going to use the word family a lot. I'm going to talk about the church as a family, and I, I would hope most of us are probably okay with that, right? We like that terminology. But here's what I want to make clear, because I think it's something we easily fall into. Family, listen to me, family in reference to the church is not a synonym for small. Family is not a synonym for small when it comes to a church. Now, there are ways in which a smaller church, it may be easier for someone who's looking for that, that family feel that you, don't, you don't really, can't really necessarily articulate, describe it as something you kind of feel in your tummy every once in a while, like it's my family. I suppose there's a sense in which it's easier to find a sense of family in a church of 200, such as ours, rather than one of 2,000 or, or 20,000. But I don't think that that's a rule. I think that's just something that we know. For instance, I have a friend who told me not long ago that, that last year, for almost the entire year, he attended a church of 20. A church of 20 people almost every Sunday for a single year, and he said not once in that entire year did one of those 20 people ever speak to me. Now, I wanted to ask, why did you keep going to that church? But 
But family is not a synonym for small. There are many, many people who attend a church of two or three or four thousand who very much feel at home and welcome and cared for as a family. So I, I, I say that. Maybe you think that's helpful. Maybe you think it isn't. I just want you to know we're not going to play that game. I'm not going to play that game. We're not going to play the game of are we trying to get big? Are we trying to stay small? Uh, it, it's got to be this way to feel like a family. I just don't think God wants us to play that game. Jesus is the one who said, you plant, you water, I'll grow the church the way I want it to grow. So we need to understand that that's not what it's about either. Instead, here's really where my heart is, and then I promise we're going to get into the text. I really believe that as we are moving into a new ministry season, it has begun. And I think particularly in light of last Sunday's celebration, looking back on 40 years and the challenge to pursue God, to to, to run after God's immeasurably more in the years to come. I just think it's a perfect time for us to talk about what it means to belong. What does it mean to belong to your church? Again, what can you expect and what can you offer? And to get us started this morning, before we get into that outline that I was referring to next week, and I'll talk a whole lot more about that when next week rolls around, I want to begin this way. I want to start by giving you, by offering to you, three essential building blocks of belonging. In this passage, Acts 2, 37 through 47, uh, what I want to show you of all the things we can look at is, is if you want to even talk about what it means to belong, what it offers, what it requires, what it demands, what it presents. First of all, you've got to understand what it is you're, you're being invited or you're choosing to belong to. So in the time we have left, what I want to do from this passage is offer you three essential building blocks of belonging, three things you've got to have in order if you're going to move from attending to belonging, number one, most important, without question, you'll know it when I say it. The first essential building block of belonging is this, number one, saving faith in Jesus Christ. Saving faith in Jesus Christ. You know, most of us who preach, at least the guys I know, like, want to, like anybody else in their chosen profession, their chosen field, their occupation, we want to get better as the years go by, right? I, I want to be a better preacher next year than I am this, this year. I hope I'm a better preacher than I was when I started 20 years ago. There are literally nights when I wake up in bed and think, wow, why did anybody listen to me 20 years ago? Those things were awful. They were bad, and I don't ever want to go back there again. We all want to get better. But I say that to you because there's something interesting here in Acts chapter 2. At least this is my hunch, that it's entirely possible that for the Apostle Peter, great Peter, pillar of the church, the rock, all that kind of stuff that, that he was involved with with Jesus, I think there's a very good chance, looking at this text, that the first sermon Peter ever preached was his best one. At least in terms of results. I don't know if he ever had another day quite like this. Because after, beginning in verse 14 and going down through verse 36, right where we picked the story up this morning, after preaching a very clear, very bold gospel message, he preached about Jesus' life and his death and his burial and and resurrection. He's told the story of Jesus from start to finish. After doing that in verses 14 through 36, what do we see in verse 37? We see Peter has 3,000 people literally standing in front of him begging for the application. That's a preacher's dream, can I just tell you? 
We, we do interpretation and we do application. I have never had, don't do it today, it's really okay, but I've never had somebody rush the platform halfway through the sermon and sermon say, tell us what to do. We want to know how to apply it. But he's got it right here. He's got 3,000 people. Look at verse 37. It's exactly what happened. And it's phenomenal. Now, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what now? What should we do? Look at verse 38. Peter said to them, repent. And each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, in looking at that verse, let's be careful not to trip over the fun doctrinal questions that people like to, to dig into there. Questions like whether or not Peter's saying you have to be baptized to be saved, because you don't. Questions like whether or not you receive the Holy Spirit. Everybody receives the Holy Spirit at the moment of salvation. You do. There, I just solved the two doctrinal questions that are presented right there. We don't have to worry about it anymore. But the reason I say that is because people get stuck in a passage like this, looking at those questions all the time, and they miss the whole point Peter's trying to make. And he is trying to make a point, and it is this. Repeat after me. There's only one way into God's family. There's only one way into God's family. That's the message. It is to... A, recognize that Jesus Christ is in fact the Son of God. He wasn't a good man and he wasn't a great man. He was the God-man in the flesh. Recognize that Jesus is the Son of God. Lies, B, that you're a sinner and that he died on the cross for you. Repent, C, of that sin, requesting God's forgiveness. And D, when you do, immediately and irrevocably, you receive God's gift of eternal life. And the whole point here of Peter's message is none of that is appropriated by doing. All of it is appropriated that is received by believing. Believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And as verse 39 makes clear, it's for everybody for the promise, Peter said, I don't know why he felt compelled to say this, but I'm glad that he did. The promise is for you and your children and all who are far off. That's a reference to, to every tribe, tongue, and nation. As many as the Lord our God will call to himself. In other words, there are no inner rings in the family of God. There are no outer circles in the family of God. Now, I know there are inner and outer rings in some churches, probably in all of them to some degree, but that's not God's design. That's what we did. There's no inner rings. There's no, you sit up here, the rest of us are in the balcony. You can know some stuff and others can't. No, no, no. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Same way, same gift, same plan. That's how you're in. Everyone who believes, here's what I'm trying to say, everyone who believes immediately belongs to God's great, big, universal family. You trusted Jesus as Savior, you're already in. Now, that much is clear right off the bat. That's how you get into the family. There's no other way. But Peter doesn't stop there. Luke, the author of Acts, doesn't stop there. He tells us what happens next. And that leads to the second essential building block that I, I want us to see and lay hold of this morning, which is this, that, that realizing everyone who believes belongs, that all 3,000 of these people who trusted Jesus that day were immediately ushered into God's universal family. What we see next, beginning in verse 42, is that the normal, everybody say normal, normal. 
the usual, everybody say usual, the typical, everybody say typical, the normal, usual, typical next step they took was here as building blocks number two, they made a fixed commitment to corporate worship. A fixed commitment to corporate worship. Now, in verses 42 and 43, there's a couple of things that I think we've we got we to gotta take note of. The first is, is just the particulars or, or the practices of what this group of new believers immediately started doing when they met together. First of all, we want to look at the practices. So very quickly, I want to walk you through verse 42. Walk us through verse 42. It says this. They were the 3,000 saved that day who were added to the 120 who had already been in the upper room along with the 12 disciples all of them together, not a small church, right? Big group. Even so, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Now, real quickly, let's just make sure we're clear on what that means. He says the first thing they, they devoted themselves to, and I'm not putting this on the screen, so you're just going to have to listen and jot it down if it matters to you, was teaching. They devoted themselves, first of all, to the apostles' teaching. Now, if you think about it, at that point in time, there wasn't a New Testament, right? There weren't any Gospels. Peter and Paul and James and John, they hadn't written any letters yet. They didn't have what we have. Again, we are so blessed this morning. So what did they have? Well, they had the testimony of those 12 apostles. These men who had spent three and a half years seeing the miracles and hearing the sermons and, and, and joining in the prayers and all of that, and they were simply telling the stories of Jesus. I'm sure they went back to what we call the Old Testament, the scriptures they did had, have, and, and, and tied the things that, that, that are said there together with, with what Jesus came and fulfilled and accomplished. But they devoted themselves to teaching, nonetheless, to learning more about the person of Christ. That's the first thing. Secondly, it says, they devoted themselves to fellowship. To fellowship. Now, when the Bible uses the word fellowship... It doesn't mean the Christian cocktail party most of us think of, all right? You say, what's a Christian cocktail party? You know what it is. It's lemonade and cookies, right? <laughs> if you get together as a church, it's fellowship if there's lemonade and cookies. I prefer coffee and donuts, but you get the idea. And, and, and a lot of times the church will do something like that. A gathering of believers said, so we had fellowship. No, you didn't. You had snacks. Fellowship is different. The word for fellowship means life on life. It means spending time and digging in. It means I listen to you, you listen to me. I pray with you, you pray for me. It's a, it's a commitment. It's, it's a group of people, however big or small, who spend mass quantities of time together through which they experience the joys and sorrows of life together and walk with each other through them. Fellowship. Third, the breaking of bread. Says they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. Now, that may have reference to a large communal meal, like what we did last Sunday after the service, but most scholars, most commentators, Bible students agree that what's really being referred to is what we just did a little bit ago, communion. The breaking of bread is a synonym for communion. That is, as often as they possibly could when they were together, they would remember, why are we here? Jesus died. Why are we saved? Jesus rose. It's not just about the Christian feel-good club, right? It's not about coming together and... No, it's, it's about Christ. We've got to go back to the cross again and again. And then fourthly, he said, they devoted themselves to prayer. Literally in the Greek, it says, the prayers, which suggests a, a regular, 
concentrated time or times of seeking God's face in worship, seeking God's hand for help. It wasn't just off-the-cuff zipper prayers, but engaging in seeking the Lord together. Prayers almost certainly informed by the Psalms and other portions of Scripture. These are the things they did. Now, I'm not going to say any more. Maybe that's enough already about those four things, because I promise you in the, in the coming weeks we're going to deal in each and every one of those things at much greater length and talk about what do they look like in, in the life of a church like ours. Except to say this, that what we see in Acts 2.42 are the essentials of a local church. Regardless of its size, regardless of its location, regardless of, 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 of their organizational structure, their order of service, their liturgy or lack thereof, these are the fundamentals of a local church. Certainly churches do more. Certainly churches should do more. Certainly our church does more than just these four things. But here's what I believe with all my heart. You do less than these four, you're not a church. Not a functioning New Testament church, even if it says it on the sign. Who can imagine a church without prayer? Is it really a church if you don't ever think or talk about the sacrifice of Jesus? If you're not caring for one another? It's a community gathering, but it's not a church. These are the essentials. They are irreplaceable in the local church. But you know, as true as that may be, what's, I believe, really crucial to note here for our purposes this morning, again, sort of by way of introduction, as I want you to know, look at verse 42 one more time, at the, not just the practices that are spelled out here for us, but the nature of the commitment from which the practices of worship and prayer and fellowship sprung. Because what does it say at the beginning of verse 42? My translation renders it this way. Yours may be slightly different. It says, it says that they were continually devoting themselves to these four things. Now, in English, that's three words. In Greek, it was one, and it's a really cool word, so let me give you your word study for the day. This is, this is good stuff because, because when, when Luke uses this word to describe what they were doing, the Greek term for continually devoting themselves, again, this isn't going to be on the screen because I couldn't fit it in, but if you want to write it down, here it comes. It's a word that expresses. Now, this is the attitude they brought to the gathering of the church family. It is a word expressing relentless activity, at maximum effort in a specific direction. That is, they had a plan. They knew what they were all about. They knew what their yeses were. Committed to overcoming any obstacle that got in their way that would keep them from doing these things. Let me say that again. It was relentless activity, maximum effort, specifically directed, overcoming any obstacle. Now, let me ask you another very personal question. Is that how most Christians you know approach Sunday morning worship? Is that how you woke up today? Thinking, I'm going to go be part of something special. I'm going to relentlessly make it my priority to be there. I'm going to show up and give it maximum effort. I'm going to enter into it in a specific direction. I'm going to consciously choose to shut off the distractions, to turn off my phone, to focus on Jesus. And whatever gets in the way of that, I'm going to, I'm going to do whatever I can to get around it. Did you wake up that way this morning? I didn't, but I should have. This is what they were doing from the very start. This is the way it was from the very beginning. 
I love how Ted Kluck puts it in, in his book, Why We Love the Church. If you haven't read it, you should. It's a phenomenal book. He says, quote, at the end of my life, I want my friends and family to remember me as someone who, in the context of the local church, battled for the gospel, tried to mortify sin in my life, who contended earnestly for the faith, not just as a nice guy, who occasionally noticed the splendor of the mountains God created, while otherwise trying to enjoy myself, manage my schedule, and work on my golf game. Why? Because like the men and women of the early church, what he's saying there is I have a fixed commitment to corporate worship that flows from an inner conviction. Listen, that this place more than any other is where I belong. This is where I belong. Essential building block number one, saving faith in Jesus Christ. Essential building block number two, a fixed commitment to corporate worship. Then there's one more in verses 44 through 47, and it's this. The third essential building block, the foundation we're going to stand and build upon in the weeks to come is this, is to recognize that from day, literally from day one of the church of Jesus Christ, this was a people who had, who possessed a growing passion to do life together. They had a growing passion. It may not have come naturally right from the start, but a growing passion to do life together. You know, countless pastors have preached innumerable sermons, and I would account myself among them having done this as well, touching on or dealing with the fact that that what's in it for me is the wrong attitude to bring to church. I mean, we've all dealt with, we've all preached that sermon. You've heard it before as well. Why, that's the wrong attitude to bring on Sunday morning. We say, it's not about what you're supposed to get. It's about what you can give. And that's true. That is the wrong attitude to bring. However, the fact of the matter is this. When a church is doing what it should by God's design, not perfectly because we're far from perfect, not, not always consistently, but hopefully trending in that direction. When a church is doing what God says a church, a local gathering, is supposed to do, here's the little secret. There's plenty in it for everybody. There's plenty for you to get from the gathering of God's people. And the final few verses of this passage show that. So look again at verse 47. Those who believed, all those who believed, were together. There's the first thing. They were together. And they had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing with them all as anyone might have a need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God, having favor with all the people, and the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now, I already know the objection that's brewing in your mind. I are, and even if you don't know it yet, I know it's there, okay? And if I give you enough time, you'll wander around and you'll find it somewhere in your brain. But it's this. Doesn't sound like any church I've ever gone to. Sounds like an awfully charming picture. Sounds very Thomas Kincaid, but it doesn't sound like real life. All this kind of stuff going on among God's people. And if it'll make you happy, I'll grant the point. It probably doesn't sound like any church you've ever gone to, including, in many occasions, sadly, this one. That this is what's happening. All the people, all the time, doing all this stuff and taking care of each other. But here's what I'll add. It shows us it's possible. 
it shows you that it's possible. Because these people weren't more spiritual than us. In fact, they were all saved out of either Judaism or paganism. It's not like it was a bunch of people, 3,000 people, who'd been walking with Jesus a long time. It's 3,000 people who've known Jesus for a couple of days. And yet this is what they did. And this is the way church worked. It shows us that a local gathering, again, regardless of size, location, or structure, if they're into God's essentials, really can faithfully, joyfully, fruitfully do life together in this way. We can. We can. And I think the reason that they did, the reason that they could, is somehow they understood right from the start that belonging, this idea of belonging, that at its very best, it's a two-way street. It's a two-way street. Yes, the church is responsible to welcome you in. Yes, a, a church is responsible to do certain things to make it easy to move into the rhythms of the church's life. Yes, it begins for all of us with knowing and accepting Jesus Christ. But here's the thing I notice about the book of Acts, and I've spent a lot of time in the book of Acts. And, and, and maybe you have too as you've read through the New Testament. But here's what I see. In the Bible, in the New Testament, when people get saved and they join themselves to a local church, and I see it perhaps more brilliantly here than anything else, it didn't fuel acceptance into the family, belonging to the church, did not ever appear to fuel an attitude of entitlement. What's in it for me? I'm in. Now, let, think about it. Every other club you've ever joined, every other team you've ever been picked for, every other group you've ever somehow managed to get yourself into, even despite your best intentions, there's this really good feeling of, I'm in, and there are people who aren't. Right? I mean, we don't mean it, but, but, but we like to show it every once in a while. Right? I mean, we and, and there's a good part of that. We like to belong, but there's this part that it can breed a, I'm in, you're out. Where, you know, it, it, it's you're in, you're out, you're Hawkeyes, you're Cyclones, whatever it is, and it fuels this spirit of separation. Do you see that in the New Testament? Here's what I see in the New Testament, and I see it here from day one. Again, these are people with no spiritual heritage, at least in terms of the Christian faith. I see it fueling a spirit of participation. And i got to tell you as a pastor, I've seen it, and there, is, there are a few things I love more than to see someone who either has just trusted Christ or just figured out what they have in Christ. And this is the attitude they bring. I want to I pitch in where help is needed. I don't even care what you ask me to do. Hand me a broom and I'll do it. I, I want to dig into where it is God's working. Is there stuff going on in this, this ministry? Well, I'd like to be part of that because if God's working there, I want to be there too. It fuels the spirit that says I want to lean into, not away from the people in the pews. I want to lean into the people in the pews, not physically, but, but relationally. That shows a heart that's been ignited with the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's someone who has moved from attending to belonging. And here's the thing. Here's what I'm driving at. The more I've considered it, the more convinced I have become that it wasn't so much what this early church did in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, the worship, the fellowship, the, the breaking of bread, the prayer. That was important. But it wasn't perhaps so much what they did as the way in which they did it, verses 44 through 47, 
that explains the final verse of this morning's passage that the Lord was adding to their number day by day those being saved. Because they probably walked in like you did the first time you went to church. What is that communion thing all about? I don't understand. What are these songs they are singing? I've never heard them before. But they've got something I don't. They understand love in a way that I never have. They seem to be able to forgive each other when they get and don't see eye to eye. Let me ask you something. Who wouldn't want to belong to that? Who wouldn't want to belong to that? I know church is messy. I know it better than you do, most of you. I see it often. And I know why the church is messy, and you do as well. Because it's populated by sinners. And it's full of problems. And all of us, starting with me, including you, we do things we shouldn't do. We say things we shouldn't say. We think thoughts we shouldn't think. We make decisions that we didn't set before the Lord. It's messy. I get it. You know, as I thought about it this week, I thought even after Peter's, this glorious sermon Peter preached, I'm sure it wasn't very long at all before he and the other 11 apostles realized that these, these 3,000 new spiritual bundles of joy they've just been received, they just had, had handed to them, we're going to have 3,000 very dirty diapers to change in very short order. There are going to be messes and blowouts and and they were going to have to clean it up. Why? Because they didn't know any better. It was all new. Church is messy. Isn't that kind of the point? Isn't that, in a way, kind of the point? What I mean by that is this. That if the Lord can do stuff like this with people like that, with people like this, do we have a better testimony to the transforming power of Jesus Christ than that? That you and I can walk together? That you and I can care about each other? That when I miss it, and I miss it all the time, we don't kick each other out? Why? Because there's something holding us together. I don't attend. I belong. I belong. So let me ask you this morning, and then I'll pray. Question number one, have you trusted Jesus Christ? I mean, are you in? <laughs> have you repented of your sin and trusted Jesus Christ? Until you've done that, none of the rest of this even applies. But you can today, and you will be freely forgiven and received. If you have, question number two, are you committed to corporate worship? Is it the main thing or is it just one thing in your very, very busy life? Three, could your passion for doing life together grow? Is there room to grow? Yeah, there is. And that's why the, the big idea of today's message is this, that, that our church really will, any church, but since it's Maranatha and that's where we are, our church, our church will be its best when each one of us chooses to belong. Our church will only and truly be its best when you make the choice, I make the choice, each of us makes the choice to belong. Relentless commitment, joyful devotion, humble spirit, daily walk with Jesus Christ. Father,
It's, it's hard to do life together. But Father, at the same time, we know, and I'm thankful, Father, that we have the context, even of just last Sunday, to say through the good and the bad and the messy and the clean and the salvations and the losses and all the rest, Father, that it's not up to us to hold this thing together, that that's you. You established the church. You established this church. You decided that each man, woman, and child in the room today was going to be here. It's not an accident. It's a design. For some reason, Father, you called the couple hundred of us together at this point in time, this spot on the map. And Lord, whether we are ready for it or not, you said you're a family. Father, the things that we've talked about today, I don't want them to to in any way be Aaron's opinion or conviction. I want them, the things that we hear and the things we absorb and the things we go home processing would be the work of the Holy Spirit, Father, because I need this as much as anybody. Father, we want, we all want what happened at the end of this story. We want to see people daily coming to saving faith in Christ. Father, but it was because the story says the people of God did the work of God according to the will of God with the heart of God. And even through the messiness, lives were saved. Father, would you do that here? Would you work on us where we need to be worked on individually and collectively? Father, would you do something special among us, not so that we can have a reputation as some sort of place that's got it going on, but, but simply as people who, who've committed to be more than attenders, more than spectators, but to say, I belong, you belong, let's figure this out together. Father, take the things of truth, as always, that have been spoken here today and seal them up in our hearts and keep them in our minds. Let all the rest be forgotten so that our focus as we leave is on Jesus alone, in whose name we pray. Amen.